1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives a life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the good deposit, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is, call, is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the truth, or swerved from the faith, sorry. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. I, I had a goal in high school and in college, a very important goal, one that I applied myself to with constant vigor and with great consistency. And that goal was to obtain the grade that I desired in each and every class with as little work as possible. I mean, my, my desire, if, if a 90% was what I was going for, was to get a 90.1%. If I got a 95 in a class, I was disappointed I had done too much work. Why did I do, why did I spend so much time on this? I could have gotten a 90 and gotten the same grade. Less studying was more desirable than more knowledge obtained or applied. It wasn't about learning. It wasn't about growing. It was about passing and getting by and getting the grade that I deemed the grade that I needed to get. Frankly, our public education system lends itself to just this kind of thinking, but that's another topic for another time. Nevertheless, the most significant issue in this whole thing was a problem in my own thinking and my own desires. It was a problem in my own heart. I wanted to know what is the minimum requirement the minimum effort that I could put forth and still achieve the thing that I wanted to achieve. Unfortunately, then, after college, I hit the real world. And I became aware that it, no one cared. It didn't matter. It didn't matter 
how narrowly I averaged A's in my classes in high school or even in Bible college as a pastor. No one, no one cared. It didn't matter that I got an A on the class. It didn't matter. No one cared really about the papers that I had written or even the paper on which my degree was printed. No one cared. It did not matter. It didn't matter. It mattered much more what I actually knew, what I could actually do, what I had actually learned. And quite frankly, it mattered more that the habits of my life were completely and utterly undisciplined. That probably mattered the most. That probably set me back the most. That did the most damage. That, were, that was the place in which I had to catch up the most. It was my own laziness and passivity that held me back. We have a problem in the church problem that I want to call, or that I like to call, minimum, re- minimum requirement Christianity. The average, I believe, the average American Christian approaches their faith the way that I approach school in high school and college. What's the minimum that is required of me here in order to get a passing grade? in order to get the grade that I want to get, in order to look the way that I want to look, in order to get my ticket to heaven? What is the minimum requirement that is required of me each week when I sit in these pews? What is the minimum requirement when I stand at the gates of heaven and the Lord says, you know, why should I let you in here or or whatever? Not, not as if that's actually how it's going to happen, but you understand what I mean. For some, this is born out of genuine confusion. They've been told Christianity is merely about Jesus giving them a ticket to heaven, and now you approach and live life mostly like you did before. Now you've got your ticket, just go on living life mostly like you do before, except you need to go to church enough to get your ticket revalidated. you got to do that. And, you know, don't do any sins that are so bad that your ticket will be revoked. But otherwise, you're good to go. And that's how many people approach the Christian life. They miss out on... This is what I want you to get this morning. They miss out on all that God has for them. That is not a benefit to them. It's not a benefit to you. Not any more than... I missed out on all that I could have learned, all the growth I could have had if I had applied myself to the opportunities I had in high school and in college. What I want you to understand this morning is that Christ extends to us, to all who have faith in Him, to all who are united with Him, He extends to us what I want to call maximum life Christianity. And instead, we take minimum requirement Christianity instead to our own harm. For others, when they hear that, when they hear a phrase like maximum life Christianity, they think, well, well, you don't have to do all of that to be a Christian. 
In fact, it may cause them to feel a bit of shame or embarrassment about how complacently they've been living the Christian life. And to soothe their shame, they accuse anyone they think does too much of being self-righteous legalists who are trusting in their own works. Oh, you, you think you need to get an, be an A student to be a Christian and to be saved. That's legalism. That's self-righteousness. Now, I'll say, it may be. It may be that some are, in fact, self-righteous legalists. That may be. But if you say, listen, this is important. If you say you only have to get a C or a D or an F even in order to be saved, then even minimum requirement Christianity is legalism. It's just legalism with a lower bar. That's all it is. That's all you're doing. It's, it's still self-righteousness. It's still about your works. It's still legalism. You've just lowered the bar down. That's all you've done. The essence of legalism and self-righteousness isn't how much works, but whether you think your works merit you something. Newsflash, they don't. They don't. Only Christ's works merit us anything. Christians living in less obedience, less discipline, less boldness, that doesn't give more glory to Christ. It doesn't give more glory to Christ for us to live in less obedience. It doesn't give more glory to Christ for us to live in less uh, boldness. It doesn't give more glory to Christ for us to live with less discipline in our life. That doesn't give more glory to Christ for us to say, look how lazy of a Christian I am, and yet I'm still saved. Praise be to Jesus. No, that is not what we see in the pages of Scripture. doesn't give any more glory to Christ than, than a college that gives students degrees even though they've learned nothing. Hey, we've graduated the most students. We're just printing off degrees. They don't know anything. They didn't learn anything. They didn't do anything. But, but they graduated. There's no glory in that. Men of God are not passive in their faith. Our love for Christ produces a desire to sit at His feet and learn. Our faith in Christ should produce, it, it does produce a desire to boldly apply as much of it as we can in our life. This does take work. That's what I want you to understand this morning. It does take work and it does take great investment. It is a fight but not to merit a grade, not to merit us anything, but because of our great gratitude for what He has already done for us and because, he, and because we want to store up into the great inheritance we already have in Him. He has given us an inheritance in Christ, in Christ alone, and we now want to store up into that inheritance. And so, here's my bottom line that I want to motivate you to. Oh, church, live maximum life Christianity. Don't settle. Don't 
settle. Paul gives us directions on the kind of work and investment it takes, and he actually uses these two metaphors in our passage this morning. The first is a fighting metaphor, and the second is is a uh, a banking metaphor, okay? So I want to use those metaphors and hopefully illustrate what does it look like for us to strive for maximum life Christianity. This is how Paul ends his letter. This is his closing conclusion. This is the, uh, the summation of everything that he's written so far in the book of 1 Timothy. It all comes to this point. Timothy, oh man of God, oh Timothy. When, you, when, when he says, oh man of God and oh Timothy in our passage, I want you to know that that's actually a Greek word. It, 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 that's not just like something that they added when they translated. There's actually a word there that Paul wrote just for emphasizing that point. It's not Timothy. It's not, hey, Timothy, do this. It's, oh, Timothy, oh, man of God, this is what you must do. How do we live maximum life Christianity? First, by storming to heaven. And second, by storing in heaven. First, by storming to heaven. And second, by storing in heaven. Let me explain. Storming to heaven. Thomas Watson Thomas Watson, uh, an old pastor from a few hundred years ago, wrote a short and insightful book called Heaven Taken by Storm, which, from which I borrowed this, this word picture. So let me explain. Watson was taking this from Jesus' own words, and it seems that Paul is uh, taking this kind of idea from Jesus' words as well. The terms that Paul uses here at the beginning of our passage are words like flee and pursue and fight and take hold and charge. They are all fighting-flavored words. All of them are words that have a, a fighting sense to them. But we've kind of lost that idea in the church today. We've lost this sense, this uh, presence of, that our Christian life ought to be militant in the way that we live it. Watson wrote this, he, he wrote in his book, quote, our life is military, Christ is our captain, the gospel is the banner, the graces are our spiritual artillery, and heaven is only taken in a forcible way. But, but Mr. Watson, we say, Reverend, venerable Reverend Watson, we are saved by grace, didn't you hear? The Reformation happened, he's like, yeah, I was like there, thanks. Watson could run gospel circles around all of us. And so we should take note of what he says when he says, quote, though heaven be given to us freely, yet we must contend for it. Though heaven be given to us freely, yet we must contend for it. What does that mean? Well, I think it's a little bit of what Paul is saying right here in our passage. I want to consider two things about storming to heaven. One, what storming heaven looks like, and two, how storming heaven is done. What does storming heaven look like? Well, let's look at our passage. First, he, he, he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Storming heaven means fleeing sin. Storming heaven means fleeing sin. Here Paul emphatically urges Timothy 
by calling him man of God, implying if anyone desires to be a man of God, here's where it starts. If anyone desires to be a man of God, listen, this letter, as we'll see at the very end, is written not just to Timothy, but it's written to the whole, uh, the whole church would have read this. And so he's calling Timothy to be a man of God, but he's calling all the men to be men of God. This is what it looks like. This is where it starts. The first thing is to flee these things, and we spent time last week talking about what these things are. The senseless and harmful desires, envy, slander, dissension, evil suspicions, all of those things, flee them. In general, flee sin. Or as it's been said, put sin to death, or it will put you to death. Put sin to death in your life, or it will put you to death. Do you take your sin that seriously? Do you take your sin that seriously? Do you really believe that your sin is an enemy that is trying to kill you? That wants you to die? It is. It's a tool in the hand of Satan to put you to death. Do you believe that? Do you really stop and think, this is a guillotine. This is a gun aimed at me. This is a knife in the hand of the devil, this sin. Listen, we know that we can't storm heaven if we keep taking vacations to hell. And we forget that you can't storm heaven if you don't get off your couch. And so he goes on. He says, we storm heaven not only by fleeing sin, but we storm heaven by pursuing virtue. And I almost entitled this, this uh, point, pursuing Christian virtue. But then I stopped and I deleted the word Christian. I deleted it because it's unneeded. Because to, to say pursue Christian virtue would be to imply that there's a kind of virtue that is not Christian in nature. And that is nonsense. It's nonsense. If it is not Christian virtue, it is not virtue. That's what you need to understand. The world wants, us, wants to, you to think that there's virtue outside of God's word, outside of God's character, and it does not exist. If it is not in accordance with God's character, it is vice, not virtue. It is evil, not good. It is unrighteous, not righteous. We got to get that presupposition out of our head. We got to change our way of thinking. We need to realize, we need to think like, like Paul does, like Jesus does, like God's word does. Someone might say, well, I know a Christian and he isn't a very virtuous person. Well, that does happen. But Christian here is a reference to Christ. And Christ's character is the epitome of virtue. He is truth. He is right. See, we've largely replaced a virtue with what we might call utilitarian effectiveness, right? A bank says that they value honesty as an example, but not because it's a virtue in and of itself, but because no one's going to do business with them unless they value honesty, right? 
Like, who wants to bank at the bank who's like, yeah, we, we honesty, take it or leave it. Whatever. No one, no one wants to do that. So, it, so it, we've, we've boiled it down to just utilitarian effectiveness. Well, this is practically what's going to help us do better business. No one is willing anymore to stand on principles. It's just pragmatics. There's no longer a category for being and doing something because it's the right thing to be and do, even if it means less immediate success, even if it appears to be a threat to your freedom and to your happiness. That is virtue. That is what we are to pursue as Christians. And we are to trust God that when we pursue that virtue, He will take care of the rest. When we pursue His character, He handles all the rest of the details. In a minute, we'll talk about, in a minute, Paul will talk about Christ who stood before Pilate and made the confession and died for it. And there used to be men and women in Christ who would stand on virtue and uh, the virtue that they saw in Christ and die for it. And we won't even do business by it. It's to our shame. Here Paul gives us six virtues to pursue or chase down. Righteousness or conduct according to God's will. Godliness or that reverent Christian worship we owe to God that we've been talking about all through this letter. He says faith. Faith is a virtue. It means to trust or, or, or perhaps faithfulness or reliability. Either way, whether it's trust uh, uh, faith is in trust or, tra- or faith is in faithfulness, that trust will always result in faithfulness, right? And then love, love is what he said in, first, uh, in the first chapter is the aim of our charge. Without trust in God, love becomes difficult, does it not? It becomes spotty because we have little reason to think that other people will show us love back. And so how do you love consistently if you are not firmly grounded in the love of one who will love you consistently. We, with God, we have every reason to believe He will continue to love us because He gave His Son, because He hung on a cross to show us that love. Steadfastness, it says. Patient endurance, there's a way we can think about steadfastness. Too. We, we keep loving faithfully. We keep loving in righteous ways. We keep loving in godly ways. And then finally, gentleness. And here is the attitude of the way in which we are to endure gently. And that's difficult. It's difficult when things are difficult in life to be steadfast. And it's even more difficult to be steadfast in the gentleness of Christ, is it not? It's, it's hard. You know, when my, as a trivial example, when my kids continue to, to do the thing I told them not to do over and over and over again, and I'm continuing to try to, uh, plead, you know, share with them, this is why we, we act this way, this is why we do this thing and not that thing, it, and, and I'm enduring in that, but it becomes really difficult to endure with gentleness, right? With the appropriate gentleness that at some point, I'm just going to be honest with you, that's, I, this is my, this is my confession earlier, I went during confession time. 
We storm heaven by fleeing sin. We storm heaven by pursuing virtue. We storm heaven by holy violence. By holy violence. Watson says that it is not an ignorant violence. This is not a bloody violence, but a holy violence, one that is violent for the truth and violent for salvation. Are you violent for your salvation? You think, well, but I'm saved in Christ. Well, you're justified by Christ's work alone, true. But salvation is much bigger than that in the Bible. We are to work out our salvation, Philippians 2 says. Paul says it's a good fight that we fight. And we are to take hold, he says, of eternal life. We are to take hold of this salvation that we have been promised. And, and this, is, this idea of taking hold is like wrestling or tackling. You know, the image that comes to my mind, have you ever been to a rodeo? Have you ever been to a rodeo, the, the, the event uh, where they uh, let the calf, the calf wrestling event? And the guy's on the horse and they let the calf out and the horse shoots off and he's got the lasso and he lassos the, the, the horns, the head of that, that calf. And that calf yanks back and he jumps off the horse and he runs up and he's got that short rope and he grabs it by the head and he wrestles it down to the ground and then wraps up its legs. You ever seen that? That's quite entertaining. I do enjoy it. But that's the idea here. That's the idea that Paul's trying to convey when he says, take hold of eternal life. Heaven is the calf, and God says, get it, cowboy. Peter, in 2 Peter 1.10, he says it this way, in a much more reverent way than I did there. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That's the promise of God. God says, walk in this path and you'll never fall off the cliff. And what do we start doing? Well, I don't know. This, this over here looks kind of nice. Oh, over here looks kind of nice. God's like, no, just walk in this path and you won't fall off the cliff. It's that simple, guys. Come on. I've not, I've not put a pitfall on my path. You can trust it. Just walk in it. This is true for all of us, but I just want to emphasize, I've said it earlier a little bit, but I want to emphasize this. This is true, especially for men. Man, for men, passivity is poison. Men, I want you to understand, passivity is poison for you particularly. David's sin with Bathsheba didn't start with lust. It started with letting someone else go to war for him and sitting in his palace. That's where it started. Passivity is poison. We could say a lot about this. I don't have a ton of time to spend on it, not as much as I'd like, but we, we say a lot, men, uh, of the sort of thing like, well, at least I don't. At least I don't this or that. Or I'm better than so-and-so. And then we sit down on the couch. We say, we make a lot of excuses and justifications when we should be going, we should be going hunting for spiritual provision for our family. We should be out finding, killing, 
dragging home spiritual provision for our wife and our children, and we are sitting on the couch too often. We say, oh, they'll get it, they're fine, when we should be training them to do holy violence as well. Passivity is poison. Don't let it poison you. I encourage you, I implore you, men, to get to a place where when you see passivity in your own life, it drives you up the wall. It should bother you. How do we storm heaven? How storming heaven is done. There are three important aspects of storming heaven here. Storming heaven comes from gospel truth to godly duty and for God's glory. From gospel truth to godly duty for God's glory. That's how it, I believe, always is to work. From gospel truth, we see this in verse 12b to 13. The Christian life always starts with the truth that we believe. It always must start with the truth that we believe because it, it always starts with what Christ has done in history, on the cross, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. That's where it always starts. So it doesn't start with what we do. It always starts with what we believe, what we know. It starts with the truth, the objective truth of what Christ has done. Timothy made a good confession, Paul says. He says, remember the good confession you made. He confessed this basic truth in the presence of witnesses. What is that confession? Well, he says it's the same kind of confession that Jesus made before Pilate. Well, what was the confession that Jesus made before Pilate? Jesus said before Pilate, I'm king. That's what he said. That was the confession. Pilate said, well, are you king of the Jews? And he said, you said so. So this confession is a confession that Jesus is king. He's king. He's king over everything. Starting with me, with my heart, with my life. Listen, it's not a matter, it's not a matter of, of you going, okay, well, I'll, I guess, Jesus, I'll make you king of this part of my life. Oh, okay, I guess, Jesus, I'll make you king of this part of my life. No, Jesus is king of those parts of your life, period. That's an objective truth. And if you are not saying that, then it's not a matter of him not being king. It's a matter of you being a rebel against him. Without gospel truth, it's like storming heaven without directions. Ah, where are we going now? The application is this, remember what you believe. It always starts with remembering what you believe and being encouraged. Jesus is king. Jesus is king, and I'm in him, and that means something for me, because I'm not a rebel. I'm his servant. I'm his child. I'm part of the royal family. The one who's sovereign over all is behind me. When I storm up to heaven, I'm not worried about what's going to happen when I get to the gates, but the gates swing open because the king has already seen, my son and my daughter is coming. Let him in. Let her in. Remember the truth. Remember that you've given that testimony before. Each one of you who've been baptized have given that testimony in your words and in your actions. 
Remember you've paid the price for it before. Remember all the times when doing the thing that, that you knew you ought to because Christ is king has cost you something in this temporal world. And remember that in the end, it was worth it. And do it again. Do it again. Remember the king is enthroned. And when you come to him in prayer, when you come to God in prayer, Jesus the King sits at the right hand of the Father Most High, and he intercedes for you each and every time. And you can trust he'll do it. And you can trust it'll work because he rose from the dead because the Father invited him to sit right there beside him, and he sits there in human flesh right now interceding for you. Think about that. Remember and be strengthened for the fight. It's not just from gospel truth, it's also to godly duty. And we see this in verse 14, to keep the commandment, he says. It never stops at gospel truth. The historical gospel events result in gospel-educated doctrine, and these result in godly duties. It results in application. It results in something happening in our life, and Paul tells him to keep the commandment. A commandment is something you do. Hold true to the gospel truth and godly duty so that it remains unstained and free from reproach, he says. Not not to say free from any kind of reproach. Let me be clear. Jesus himself was reproached in his life. Am I right? When he made that confession before Pilate, he was reproached just beforehand and he was reproached just afterward. He was reproached all the way to the cross. He was reproached on the cross. They spit on him, they mocked him, as he hung and he died for our sins. And so it's not, it's not free from criticism. It's not free from people trying to shame us for following Christ. It's not free from people who disagreeing with us when we obey Christ. No, it can't be that because Christ was reproached by people whose moral compasses couldn't find true north if it smacked them in the face. This reproach is a reproach based in Jesus' kingship. Do not bring reproach on King Jesus because you live as if you wear the uniform of a servant of heaven, but you live as if you're a servant of Satan. We are to maintain a holiness of life that is pointed to Jesus. Listen, without gospel duty, it's like storming heaven in an enemy uniform. Who has ever, in the history of warfare, I don't know, probably someone has, historians don't correct me on this, but who has ever in the history of warfare charged full frontal attack in the uniform, in in an enemy's uniform, right? Like, like who, who has ever, char- like, run, like, run to their own fort, let's say, wearing the enemy uniform? You can get, you get gunned down. Don't storm heaven. When we, when we fail in God, gospel duty, it's like storming heaven in an enemy uniform. The application is is this here. Remember, 
Remember, again, remember why martyrs die and live it. It was Jesus' claim of kingship that ultimately got him sentenced to death, right? And what I want you to understand is the majority of persecutions and martyrdom throughout church history were not for saying that Jesus is God or saying that Jesus saves. It just, it just, not, it just wasn't. It's not for, the majority of martyrs, the majority of persecution is not because I said, because someone said Jesus is God. It's not because someone said Jesus is Savior. No, that's not why. It's because they make a claim to Jesus' kingship. That's why. Because they make a claim that Jesus says so and it doesn't matter what you say. Because they, they, because they do according to no, Jesus is my king and I'll do what he says. You're not my king. You don't get to tell me. Paul shares the gospel and it changes people's lives and it hurts someone else's economic interests and persecution comes on the church. It's persecution because people are living as if Christ is king. That's why. First century Christians won't bow the knee to Caesar or say Caesar is king, but literally say in response, Jesus is king. First century Christians are accused of being cannibals because they participate in the communion that their king has told them to participate in, and people don't get it, and so they're persecuted. Guys in history, I'll just share a couple. Jan Hus is martyred. Why is he martyred? Is he martyred for saying Jesus is is our Savior, Jesus is God? No, he's martyred because he publicly calls out the deeds of others as sin. Because he says, no, that's, that's sin. No, no, that's sin. No, that's sin. And they burn him at the stake. William Tyndale is martyred. Why? For translating the Bible to English. Something that we would take for granted now. But he was compelled because Jesus is his king to storm heaven for every English-speaking person and get the Bible in their hands, in their language, so they could read the word of God and storm heaven as well. And he died for it. Listen, you are not going to be persecuted most often because you say Jesus is God or Jesus is Savior. People will just turn to you and go, okay, well, I guess that's what you believe, whatever. I don't, I don't agree with you, but whatever. They're going to persecute you when you start actually living like it. Most persecution happens not because Christians say that Jesus died and rose from the dead, but because they live like Jesus died and rose from the dead. Are you living like Jesus died and rose from the dead? Finally, it's for God's glory. Timothy we see this in verses 15 and 16. Timothy is to continue his assault on heaven until Christ appears. And there's these three glorious truths here that I want to share with you in verse 15. This truth that God is sovereign. We can't understand everything. And God is obligated to tell us all of his plans. But we can trust that God will do it at the proper time, just as he revealed his purpose in Christ at the proper time because he's blessed, because he's sovereign, because he's king of kings and lord of lords, he says. He is above all the worldly authorities that exist. He is sovereign. Second, because God is eternal. How do you face the kind of persecutions that would come to us for living as if Christ is king unless we understand that God is eternal? God alone is immortality. We, by God's grace, can live forever. 
although we may die, although we will die. But God exists beyond death's reach. God is not made alive. God is not made immortal. He is eternal. He has all life. Resurrection life in Him. And God is holy. So God is sovereign. God is eternal. God is holy. This is this great, this great majestic, uh, uh, worshipful poem that, that Paul declares right here to the glory of God, reminding Timothy of God's glory. He is holy. He dwells in light that is unapproachable. In Ephesians 5, he describes this light as goodness, righteousness, and truth. In the Old Testament, God cannot be seen by sinful man because of His holiness. Only in Christ do we get to see God because the Father is unapproachable. He's so other than us. He's pure good. He's pure truth. He's pure right. Without God's glory, it's like storming heaven with no weapons, with nothing to siege we have no motivation, we have no utility, we have no power to do so unless we get that from the glory of our sovereign, eternal, holy God. Remember, remember why it's worth it and praise God. But it doesn't stop there. We don't just storm heaven, we store up into heaven. And this means that we need to have a, the kind of heart that stores up in heaven, and it means we need to have the kind of life that stores up in heaven. The kind of heart that stores up in heaven is, is one um, that we see here in these first couple of verses in verse 17. He says, don't be pr prideful in hope and riches. Paul tells Timothy to charge the rich of this age, those who are financially and temporally rich, those who are rich in an earthly sense, not to be haughty or to be prideful, nor to put their hope in the certainty, the uncertainty of riches, rather. You can almost hear him saying, remember King Jesus when he told us that a man, about the man who built bigger barns and then died that night. What then should we hope in? Well, he says to hope in God. And humbly admit God has given us everything. Hope in God. Admit that He has given us everything. That's that's our should be our heart attitude. That's the kind of heart that stores up into heaven. Storing in heaven starts with a certain mind and heart orientation. It hopes in God and not in riches because it realizes that everything that we have comes from God. God can take it away just as quickly as He gives it out in Deuteronomy 8. The passage we just read earlier in the service, God is giving His people instructions for when they will finally possess the promised land. You, you remember, a whole generation did not hope. A whole generation came to the, to the very threshold of the promised land, and they did not hope in God, and then they died in the wilderness instead. And God brought them around for 40 years, and He brings them back to the threshold of the promised land, and all of their children are standing there. And Moses says, let me reiterate the law, let me reiterate the covenant that God made to your parents, to you, and it's what we call Deuteronomy. And in that, in, verse, in chapter 8, He says to them, what I read earlier, he says, don't forget. Remember God. Remember what he did in bringing you out of Egypt. Remember what he did as you wandered through the wilderness. 
Be humble. Beware, he says in verse 17, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gave you power to get wealth. That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your father. See, this is how sad it is. God gives us the power to provide for ourselves. And, and, and why does he do that? He says, to confirm his covenant. Essentially, what he's saying there is, I made a promise to you and I did all these things for you to confirm my promise to you, to show you, you are my people, to show you I love you, to show you that I'm a good God that cares for you, to show you my mercy. And you've taken that, you're going to take that and you're going to say, I did it instead. You're going to take my love, my love letter to you. And you're going to warp it and turn it into something you did for yourself. And how often in our own life does God bless us immensely as his children? And we turn around and say, look what I did. God, I don't need you. When we hope in those things rather than God, that's essentially what we're saying to him. Christians, you are in covenant with God, living on land and in a life he gave you. What you have is not by your own power or by your own hand, but, but it's from him. Humble our hearts. Be drawn into a greater sense of love for God and a greater sense of his love for us. And this is not transactional. He doesn't say it so that faithful Christians with good hearts know to, to work really hard so that they don't perish. That's not why he says this, nor is it simply relational. We know that unfaithful hearts have no excuse. They'll say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. So it's not transactional on the one hand, and it's not just purely relational on the other, but it's covenantal. Faithful children delivered from sin by God's gracious purpose, can know exactly how then they should live as God's children. So that's the kind, that leads us to the kind of life that stores up in heaven. And Paul tells us here, he says, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Be rich in good works and store up in heaven. Be generous. Lay up for yourself a good foundation, that is to say, treasure that will really last. And we think of Jesus' parable of the shrewd manager who uses his means to make friends for himself. Well, you can't buy souls to heaven, right? But you can use your money to buy opportunities to share the gospel. You can open up your house and your food budget and be hospitable. You can buy someone coffee or a co-worker lunch. You can as we do every year, pay for golf carts and serve our city at Tiblo Days or in other ways. You can do any number of things to trade up your temporal riches for heavenly ones. Imagine what it'll be like. Imagine what it'll be like when we nervously trade our temporal riches for eternal riches today. Imagine what it'll be like one day when we get to heaven and God 
peels back the veil. And he shows us what we traded for. And we realize, why was I ever nervous? Why did I ever even think about whether I should do that or not? Why did I ever second guess, even for one second, whether I should make that trade? Thank you, Jesus. I think we'll go back. I think we'll, well, I think we would want to come back and trade more. Listen, he ends with this. He says, Timothy, oh, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We have a deposit. Guard it. We have a deposit. Guard it. Anyone who has made a large purchase knows what it is like to pay a deposit to guarantee something you intend to buy in full. You want to buy a house, you put down that escrow deposit, right? You say, no, I'm going to come back. I'm going to pay for the rest of this. Keep it for me. You know what that's like. But here, Jesus paid in full for us. Jesus already paid in full for us. And then he gives us a deposit. He gives us a deposit so that we know that one day we will receive that inheritance in full. He's given you a deposit. This truth, God's word, which lasts forever, forever in earthen vessels, which he grants to eternal life to. And, and the work of proclaiming that truth that moves us from death into life. Consider the things that truly last. The knowledge that these false teachers profess, it's false. Instead of a good confession that leads to the commandment, by professing what's false, they swerve from the faith. Guard the deposit. It's a fight every day if we're going to guard it. But Watson says, holy violence is violence for truth and our salvation. Guard, pursue, fight, take hold of. Paul's final words, and I'll end with this. Paul's final words in the letter is, is simply this, grace be with you. And the you is you all. Grace be with you all. A common ending, and typically and oftentimes he says, he identifies that grace as the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. His unmerited favor, his blessing to us, and we know he gives it to all of his brothers and sisters. So we must ask ourselves this, how far does that grace go? How far does the grace of Jesus go? We call him king. Do we believe he can pour out a king's bounty of blessing on us? He says that all authority in heaven and on earth is his. Do we believe his grace is only for other worldly things? Or do we believe that he's poured it in our hearts so that it bursts forth into every area of our life? How much grace do you want? How much grace does he have? How much grace do you believe is there? Is it just a minimum requirement to get by? Or is it grace for a maximum life in Christ? 
Is it life and life abundant? Oh, church, live maximum life Christianity. Let's pray.